We all want to do work that we love. And as leaders, entrepreneurs, and employees, wouldn't it be great to create workplaces where work feels like play? Where people are tuned in to the changes going on in the world around them. Where they're constantly learning, spotting new opportunities, and taking action to go after them. I'm Amanda Satilli, and this is the Fearless Growth Podcast where my guests and I will explore the mindsets and choices that lead you and your organization to outstanding performance. Today, my guest is Robbie Kelman Baxter, author of The Membership Economy and The Forever Transaction, two pioneering books in the field of subscription businesses. Robbie is a strategic thinker, a thought partner, and an expert in everything subscription and everything memberships. She lives in Silicon Valley, and I'm just thrilled to welcome her today. And so, Robbie, exploring this territory, the the Fearless Growth book, my second book, was about how companies and people can kind of overcome the uncertainty and fear that holds them back in being able to do new things when the market is really changing fast, when the world around them is changing really fast. And... um one of the things that I think is important to understand when you want to go somewhere new is where did you come from and what do you really value in life? What really um, makes you tick? What makes you, um, you know, what what is really the thing that brings you strength? And so a question I wanted to ask you is what did you really love doing when you were 11 years old? I loved making money. I, not, because, not because I loved the money because I didn't even like to spend money but as a way of keeping track. Um, and I loved coming up with, you know, I did babysitting. I did Mother's Helper. I um, organized carnivals with chalk on my driveway. Um, I sold my old stuff. I had, I had garage sales. I organized things where, you know, four moms could bring all of their kids to me and two friends and we'd babysit all the kids together. Um, and I just, I always loved, like before I became a terrible teen, that was what gave me the most joy was organizing projects around, you know, some kind of a, of a business endeavor. It's so interesting because that's what you do now. Not the money part, not that you're so money focused, but you help companies to figure out what can they bring of value to customers that customers really, really want. And um, it's just so interesting that that's something that you enjoyed even as 11-year-old. But I don't believe that you were a terrible teen. You weren't really a terrible teen, were you? Uh, I don't know. You can ask my parents. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe that about you. But anyway, I guess we're all terrible uh, in that we're exploring new territory when we're teens. So speaking of exploration, this is an area that really interests me a lot because I think that companies... Um, need to keep exploring. They need to explore constantly in order to find new ways to expand their businesses, new ways to solve customer problems. And that's something that you're you're very good at. But what about from either an intellectual point of view or just in your life, what do you wish you could explore more if time were no issue? If you had infinite time to explore, what would you explore? Oh, gosh, there's there's so many things. I mean, I love school. And I was a good student and I, you know, when people would ask me in high school, what do you want to study? Or even in college, what do you want to study? You know, there were so many things that I found interesting. Um, I studied poetry in college, um, but I could have just as easily studied, you know, government or economics or German or Russian or history. Um, 
And I feel the same way now. Um, you know, we've, we've had these bird feeders over COVID. We have a couple of different bird feeders and we've been watching the birds in our backyard quite a lot. And I'm surprising myself by how interested I am mm-hmm. in, I think it's ornithology um, and, you know, bird behavior, uh, which seems so random, but it's fascinating. So I guess in summary, that's not even on the, on the business side, but kind of on the yeah. personal side, I'm, I'm finding that that really fascinating. And on the, on the professional side, there's so much happening right now. I feel like I'm always a little bit behind. Like there's mm. always some other book to read. There's something to dig into more thoroughly. Um, there's just so much, so much to learn. Yeah. I think that it's quite fascinating how, you know, Google set this objective, however many, 15 or 20 years ago to bring all the world's information available to everyone. And it is totally yeah. true now. Anything I am wondering, I can find out so quickly. And I can actually remember when I was young, I really enjoyed reading the encyclopedia, which is kind of ridiculous. But back then, that was like <laughs> where you went to just find stuff, yes. like random stuff where you could just open the too. pages. Yeah. Open the page randomly and see what you saw. And you'd go like, oh, that's interesting. And then you turn to a different page. So I think that People nowadays are so lucky that we've evolved to the point where you can answer any question you want so easily. And exploration is something that's so accessible to so many people. And um, I, I shared your your interest in birds. I'm not learning the names of all the birds, but I'm very proud of ourselves for having attracted a pair of bluebirds to nest right outside our kitchen window. So that's oh, my wow. bird achievement for the year. Um, <laughs> so... I'm exploring the idea of fear, and I think that if you went and asked an executive, what are you afraid of? They might say, well, I'm not really afraid of anything, but yet I'm seeing that fear does hold companies back from being able to do what they need to do. And perhaps you see this in your business as well, where you're helping companies to to try something new in the subscription arena. And let's first just talk about your own experience can you tell me any kind of story of a time when you were afraid to try something or afraid to head a new direction, but you ultimately overcame that fear? And how did you do it? Well, one of those, Amanda, I think you were along for for part of the journey, which is my journey to writing my first book. Um, I really, you know, I knew I had, I don't, I don't want to say I had to write a book, but I, I knew that that was a really important step in my work. Um, I'd been focused on subscriptions for several years. I think when I actually wrote the book, it was 10 years that I'd been focused on working with businesses that use membership models or subscription pricing. And yet I didn't feel like I was ready to write a book. I didn't feel like I knew enough about book writing. I didn't feel like I had enough to say. Um, I wasn't sure that it was going to be different enough or valuable enough. And I was afraid that I would fail. I had these, um, these thoughts of what if, what if my, my friends and colleagues um, bought my book because they're my friends and said, I'll read Robbie's book. And then they said, wow, that wasn't very good. I'm kind of surprised I would have expected more from her, um, which is, you know, frankly, what, what I, what has happened to me in my life where, you know, I go do something for a friend and either I say, wow, that's great. Or, huh, it's not as good as I would have thought. Mm-hmm. And that really held me back. And my process, I've kind of come to terms with it over the years is that I'm a toe dipper. I don't dive mm-hmm. in. I want to mm-hmm. learn. I want to be confident. I want to figure out how to do it right. I want to see enough of it to see what the best practices are. And and sometimes that means that I miss the opportunity to be the first mover. 
Mm-hmm. But um, as a second mover, I know I'm going to have a solid entry. And that's, that's I think, been, been my, my journey. I'm, I'm not the first mover, um, but when, I, when, I, when I'm ready to go all in and dunk my head, metaphorically speaking, I'm pretty confident that I'll, that I'll do a good job. You're very thorough, um, which is yes. a real asset. You know, one of the things that is in fearless growth that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about is trust. And what strikes me when I listen to some of your um, videos that you put out and in your books that establishing a subscription business where customers really, really trust you is so essential because you want them to just, well, you can explain it better than I, but you want, (laughs) when I have a subscription that's just like necessary for my life, like I would never cancel it because it's just so essential to what I do. And I trust that company to continue to evolve and expand to provide everything I need in that arena. That's a particularly wonderful thing. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you work with companies to figure out what that value proposition is. What is that forever promise? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it actually you know, dovetails pretty nicely with your rule number seven, build trust into all you do. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of businesses historically are based on getting somebody to make the buying decision, um, getting them to getting them to, you know, walk into the store, getting them to pick your product and take it off the shelf, getting them to plunk down their money. And then that's the end. And in the membership economy, that moment of transaction isn't the finish line, it's the starting line for the relationship. And if you don't earn their trust again and again every day, the customer can cancel. And so you don't maximize the revenue. And in fact, in many businesses, you lose money in the first couple of months of a subscription before, you know, you become net positive. So it's really critical that they stay with you. And so you have to build a a relationship that is ongoing and you have to think about the long term. You can't go for that quarterly capitalism. I got to hit my number. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to trick the customer into spending more than they wanted because then you lose that customer. and you lose your revenue stream and you risk, you know, your, your future revenue. So it becomes really, really important that you, that you establish trust and that you have a value proposition that goes beyond your headline benefit, the benefit that gets them to join you or sign up with you or spend money with you in the first place. It has to go on. So to answer your question, when I'm working with an organization that is really good at transactional business, they sell a product or sell a service, um, and they're trying to move into subscription, the biggest challenge is we have to figure out what is the ongoing benefit that you're providing, not the one-time benefit, but Mm -hmm. what beyond that headline benefit that gets them to join, what are the engagement benefits that are going to make them use your product as a habit? And what are the retention benefits that are going to make them think twice before they cancel? Ah, so tell me more about the retention benefits. Somebody in your, uh, I was listening to, I was participating in one of your group events the other day and somebody was talking about how they were grandfathered into an old price and that was, that was why they were retained. And I know that's true with me with LinkedIn, not that I wouldn't, would ever cancel my LinkedIn subscription, but I sometimes think of upgrading, but I've got this really good deal that I got like 10 years ago from LinkedIn and I don't want to change <laughs> anything about it because I've got this grandfathered deal. So what what causes the retention? Are there tricks to it? Is there some essence to it that's um, 
that you found really effective? Well, so at a high level, the secret to retention is providing somebody with ongoing value that either helps them achieve an ongoing goal. So a goal that's not going away, like I want to be healthy. I want to be informed. I want to be connected with my network, which might be the LinkedIn reason. Mm -hmm. Um, So an ongoing goal or to avoid an ongoing problem. Mm-hmm. Right. I want to have, you know, the exterminator come by. Like we have the, the, you know, the guy that comes to our door and says, what's bugging you? And mm-hmm. then he goes around and sprays everything every month because that's a problem I don't ever want to have. I want him to solve that problem on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the high level way that you, that you manage retention. Um, tactically, you know, what I see with a lot of organizations is they overinvest in the acquisition benefit. Um, a lot of product teams are incented to come up with a new feature that's going to get a new group of people to buy. And that's what they measure is who bought because of the new feature we built in, as opposed to who stayed or who stayed longer because of the new feature we built in. And Uh. some of the specific features that, you know, our retention and engagement benefits might be making something into a habit, helping them figure out what the next step is. So you watched you know, if you watched Hamilton, you'll love The Sound of Music, mm-hmm. right? It's, you know, if you're enjoying your Netflix subscription, share it with your children or your roommates or your friends, because that's how you're going to get more value. And that's what's going to make you likely to stay. I think the example you provided about getting, you know, better pricing because you've been around for a long time, that kind of loyalty that an organization shows to you in exchange for your loyalty to them that can be really sticky. Like, oh, I don't want to cancel because if I come back, um, I'm not going to get the same great price. Um, but it can also backfire, as you said, because maybe you'd be a lot happier with an upgrade with with additional LinkedIn features, but you don't want to touch anything because you know you have a really good deal. So that would be a question I'd have for LinkedIn. I've had that problem with other products as well. I had a funny one the other day with AT&T where I had this international plan and I was it was actually that we weren't living at that house anymore. So I was going to cancel this international plan. And so I called AT&T, like what other plans are available or whatever. And the guy could not find the plan anywhere in their database. Like it was such an old plan that it didn't even exist anymore, except on my bill. So um, (laughs) I think that some of these subscription businesses, they just come out with different deals every day, every month. I don't know how often. Yeah. They test them and then some fizzle out and they discontinue them, but they end up, I would imagine, with a lot of grandfathered customers for one reason or another. And something that I encourage organizations to do when they're thinking about subscription is kind of the opposite of that, which is, you know, stick with a few simple subscription pricing options because mm-hmm. I think it's very hard for the the telcos, um, the gyms, the news newspapers that have a thousand different promotions to really understand, you know, they're trying a lot of things and some work and some don't, but it's very hard to come out with clear conclusions of what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And also what it does is it educates consumers to game the system, right? Wait for the right promotion. And maybe if you don't like your, your current deal, cancel. Because if you cancel, you can come back in on a promotion or They'll try to save you. There's often, you know, call centers have these save teams where Mm -hmm. you call and you say, I'm ready to cancel. And they say, but wait, we'd love to save your business. What if we gave you 20% off? What if we gave you a free toaster? And what that does is it teaches smart consumers to threaten the companies that they're working with. And back to your point on trust, 
if I'm trying to game the system and I'm trying to think about how I can trick you, like that I know that it's a game. If I want to get a fair price, I have to threaten you. Um, that's not going to do a lot for trust. Right. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that when companies introduce a new um, offer or whatever, they often measure themselves based on the number of new customers they get, but they should also, or maybe even more importantly, be measuring themselves based on the number that they retain. But it's very difficult to tell how many you retained because of that feature or because of that offer. So how do you advise them in that case? I've seen that happen a lot where retention is undervalued because it's so hard to measure. Yeah, it's it's a great point. Re- retention is undervalued because it's hard to measure. And the other metric that's really hard to measure is lifetime customer value. What mm. is the value? You know, how much money? And this is true, not just of subscription businesses, but, you know, it could be true in, in retail or, air, or, you know, airline travel or hotels or what have you. You know, you want to understand you know, is Robbie just going to come in one time to our hotel or are we going to be able to get her to come to the hotel a hundred times or to our chain? And is she going to buy food when she's there? And is she going to get a massage, um, you know, pay for the tour, rent a car from us? And so organizations, you know, they often, you know, track what's easy to track instead of tracking what's important to the business. Um, and technology is making it easier. It's making a hard, you know, it's easier to to track um, but if you have a million different promotions that you're trying to track all at once, it's hard to do good, what I would call cohort analysis. So you can't really look at all of the people on their first month and say what works best in the first month of someone's subscription, because Amanda got a toaster and Robbie got a 20% off coupon. So it's if Amanda behaves differently, it's like, well, did Amanda really need a toaster? Did Robbie really, you know, we've given Robbie a toaster? It's just very hard to to reach conclusions when there's too many variables in play. Yeah, I guess that as we get smarter with data analytics and machine learning and things like that, companies will get better at that. But there's always so much noise in addition to what you mentioned, which could be considered to be fields in the database, like did we give toaster or not? There's also just what kind of person is this? What do they value, you know? Who do they else? Who do they know that told them about this? Yeah, source of lead is really important. Um, initial behavior is really important. What did they do when they joined? Um, so, for example, if we all join Disney Plus because we want to watch Hamilton, right? That's great. But what's the second thing we do? And what's the difference between the people who cancel after one month, where all they watched was Hamilton, and the people that discovered, oh, I can also watch princess movies. I can also watch National Geographic. Mm-hmm. I can also watch you know, action pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, you know, understanding how people use your product, especially in the early days, will tell you a lot about who's likely to stay and who's likely to cancel. So there's a lot of analytics in this business, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. When people, when companies are considering moving to a subscription model, and maybe you want to pick one particular type of company and, and describe it for us so we can kind of get our heads around what you're talking about. What is it that they're most attracted to about subscriptions? And what are they most fearful about regarding the transition to a subscription model? I think they're most attracted to recurring revenue. Predictable, Mm -hmm. two things, predictable recurring revenue, um, which is great for a whole bunch of reasons for for cash flow management, um, for valuation, both in the public markets and among venture investors. Um, And I think the other thing that they really value is disruption proofing the relationship, loyalty. If somebody mm-hmm. subscribes every month, they set it and forget it, and they're not looking at your competition. 
Um, so that's, that's what's in it for the company. I think the biggest risks that companies see, um, I think the one that, that they bring up first is that they're going to, that the only people who are going to use their subscription is going to be their best customers and they're going to end up decreasing the lifetime value. So if instead of, let's say, buying two video games for $60 each, mm-hmm. uh, now I subscribe for $100 a year. If I buy two a year, two games a year for $60 each, that's $120. If I go with the subscription, that's $100 a year. Um, if the only people that go from buying games to subscribing to games are the people that buy two or more games, uh, you're losing money on your subscription. The subscription is a bad idea. You have to be attracting new people as well. And so a lot of businesses are really worried about that. The other thing that they're worried about is kind of the crossing the chasm to the new business model, them kind of referred to as an open fish, uh, yeah. you know, where, where your costs are going up while your revenue goes down the first few months, instead of getting the whole amount of money on day one, now you're getting, you know, day one, month two, month three, month four. So you have to wait longer for the full amount of money and there's a bigger risk that they're going to leave at any point. Um, so those are the, the big things that I think hold companies back. I would think that would be very scary for many companies. If you're in a transaction business, you're used to money flowing in every single month and you're used to that end of month push to bring in additional sales or whatever. And if you, I mean, a recurring revenue is right, nice, but initially it's lower. So how do they, how do they get away with that with their investors with Wall Street? And does Wall Street understand that? Or is it such a small thing that it kind of bleeds in slowly and it doesn't really impact the income statement as severely as what I worry about? So it it absolutely impacts the income statement very severely, unless they're doing it off in a corner of the business that doesn't really matter, which is what a lot of them do to start. Um, what I've seen is, you know, I've, I've been in the subscription world for a long time. 15 years ago, nobody wanted, I mean, very few companies were brave enough to do it for these reasons. And it was happening in Silicon Valley, I think, because venture-backed companies have a longer runway, right? We don't have to, you know, you don't have to show any 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 revenue, you know, mm-hmm. for the first five, six, seven years. That gives a nice long runway to build those trusted relationships that become golden geese. Um, on the other hand, if you're a public company, uh, you're responsible for quarterly numbers. And it's hard to educate your shareholders that your numbers are going to go down for a few years, maybe, before they they go up. Um, I think today, most investors understand the magic of subscriptions. Um, subscription businesses pretty reliably enjoy valuations of, you know, on the multiples of their revenue that are like five to seven times that of their transactional peers, their episodic mm. peers. So most investors know that. So they want subscription revenue, even if it's part of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you asked, do they really understand it? They they push their companies to move to subscription, but then they expect the transformation to happen instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what's really hard. If If I were a CEO at one of your big companies that you work with, Amanda, mm-hmm. and they were getting pressure to move to subscription, that would be the thing I'd want to make sure that my board understood that time horizon before I went down that path. Mm-hmm. Do you know of any examples of companies that have transitioned from transactional to subscription and have had a dip in revenue that was not punished by Wall Street? I mean, in my book, I talked about Adobe. Um, that's probably the kind of best and, and most longstanding 
case, they did a ton of experimentation um, before they moved. They really understood and could anticipate what the behavior of their different customer segments was going to be. And they were very clear in communicating to their board which customers were okay to lose and which customers were not okay to lose and what they were doing to manage that. Um, They're smart. so that was a really good example. I think Apple's done a really good job of moving to subscription revenue. Um, you know, they, I think people understood it. They've done, I mean, it's a lot later. I, I think Adobe did it, what is it, like seven seven or eight years ago, whereas, you know, Apple's story is a little more recent um, and there's a lot more uh, glow around subscription models today. But those are two examples. What about um, Microsoft Office 365? That That's a pretty big shift, isn't it? I mean, it's cloud which yeah. is kind of the definition or they're so tightly linked to subscription, but I, I didn't even really, they've, they've just done well in the markets all through everything, all through their <laughs> transitions. Yeah. Well, they had some low points, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, but I think um, Satya Nadella has been very, very, um, their, their CEO has been very customer centric and very focused. And, and once you start focusing on the long-term relationship with the customer, whether or not you use subscription pricing, whether or not you utilize cloud technology to enable ongoing relationships with your customers, um, if you just think about your long-term relationship with the customer as what guides you in your pricing and product strategy, um, you know, you're, you're kind of already doing membership. Mm-hmm. Um, Microsoft is an interesting example, Office 365. I've, I've done a fair amount of work with that organization over the last several years. And they've had subscription pricing for quite a while, um, for a a pretty long period. You could, it was, I'm not sure if you're still able to buy the box software, but for a long time, they allowed you to do both. So unlike Adobe, who kind of ripped off the Band-Aid and said, we are moving to the cloud. And if you don't like it, you know, maybe there's another product from another company that you would prefer. Um, Microsoft took took a slower and more measured approach, um, but they continued to layer in more and more value um, for their subscribers and really tried to make it a, a more um, a more valuable experience for the people who are subscribing, so that people chose to move to subscription um, rather than being forced. Right. Well, one thing that I like about it is it's just constantly updated. So I feel like I'm always using the best stuff. That's good. That's one of the the great things about a subscription is they they keep on giving you more. If they do it right, the way you advise, yeah, absolutely, and and that's the thing. Like if a, if a, if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking about moving to subscription, one of the things that you might not realize that you need to do is to think about the product itself. A lot of a lot of businesses just slap subscription pricing on their existing offering. Mm-hmm. Hey, we we have content. Let's say it's all you can eat, and we're going to put a monthly fee on it. Or you know, we have a car. We're going to let people subscribe to that car. It's the same car. It's the same deal. You you have to think differently about the offering itself. And as you said, you have to keep layering in value um, and you have to keep innovating all the time. Well, I can tell that you would be a fabulous thought partner for any company who's struggling with these issues because each one of these questions that you just posed is easy to say, hard to hard to answer. For yeah. most companies, they need to think really, really hard. And to have a partner like you who can really, who has the exposure to many other people who are struggling with the same thing must be really valuable. You know, I, I've, I've seen so many subscription businesses that I've been able to see patterns and frameworks, you know, much in the same way that you've 
focused on on growth and innovation over time. Um, I think that having the luxury of really looking at a lot of different organizations and drawing best practices um, allows you to be really helpful um, at sort of saving. Like I always think that I'm saving my clients from the bumps that the people that have come before them have experienced. Right. I'm sure you do. We're just about out of time, but I asked, I want to ask you one thought question before we wrap up. Robbie, what do you think the future holds that most people don't realize? What I feel like people don't always see is that we're always operating on these continuums, right? And we go we go way, way, way over here to technology, and then we go way, way, way here back to the simple, right? And then we go way over here to man-made, and then way over here back to nature. And I feel like whatever it is that we're doing a lot of now, we're going to go in the opposite direction. And, and you know, in the last couple of years, we've moved so much in favor of artificial intelligence and so much in the world of making it easy, making it personalized, sharing all your information. And I think now we're seeing a big swing back the other way. Um, I don't think either of those is permanent. I think we're constantly recalibrating to try to maintain an equilibrium as a, as a community of people. Um, and so I think that's what people don't always realize is that like, it's not like we're going here and we're never coming back. It's right now we're moving this way. And at some point in the near future, you can be a hundred percent sure we're going to move in the other direction. So wise, so wise. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really fun talking with you and um, I wish you all the best with your next steps. And I'm sure that we will continue to collaborate as uh, we both go forward. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. This was really a fun and provocative conversation. Thank you for listening to Fearless Growth. You can find out more about the show at satilly.com slash podcast, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to write a review and give us a star rating. Reviews matter so much in helping others find us. Thanks for your support.